Nancy. Hi, Meg. Want to talk about coaching? Sure, Meg. Jump in. Welcome to Clarity Call with Meg Kirstead and Nancy Sun. A conversation between coaches about coaching. Join us as we examine all the thoughts and questions we have about coaching and coaching culture in our quest to become better coaches. Spoiler alert, we are two human beings with human brains making this up as we go along. So we invite you to use your being and your brain while you listen in. Today, we're going to be talking about essentially individual responsibility versus belonging to a group and belonging to a society and a culture and a team and all these things and how in coaching this shows up for us because it's very much a set of phenomenon that are potentially at odds with each other. So um, Nancy, you're actually the one who proposed this particular topic. So I'm curious why this is interesting you. I mean, it's super interesting to me. Yeah. So in one of the, I feel like almost universal tenets of coaching is showing up 100% responsible, owning your thoughts, feelings, actions, and results. And it was very interesting for me because I read a book. In this particular book, they talk about how there is like this myth in the American version of capitalism about the idea of the American dream, right? Is like- Manifest destiny crap, yeah. Yeah. And the American dream, manifest destiny- And also they talk about the idea of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That phrase is something that we use now in an unironic way. However, when that concept was first introduced, it was actually meant as a joke because you cannot literally pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So the idea that we've taken this concept that is actually like kind of bankrupt and doesn't really exist. And we've made it like a core Western American value. And that shows up in our coaching was very, very interesting to me, which was, Hey, what are the limits of this idea of a hundred percent individual responsibility? What's damaging about what it has been letting us off the hook for? And one of the things that is interesting to realize is that, of course, not all cultures are quite as individualistic as Western cultures. That's actually a very Western ideal. And there is this, I want to say, social psychologist, Dutch social psychologist, Gerard Hendrik Hofstede, which I apologize for my problem butchering of that name who essentially um, was the first person to actually propose a bunch of different ways of measuring and comparing cultures. And one of the aspects was individualism versus collectivism. So one of the things we want to acknowledge in talking about this is we're both Westerners. I mean, you're Asian American, but I'm as pale white American as they get, and I've only ever lived in America. So we're coming from this very individualistic culture, whereas Other cultures often in the Eastern world are much more collectivist and based on essentially the well-being of the group above the well-being of the individual, which I guess we should maybe define individualism versus collectivism, but 
I looked this up because of course I did. So individualism is the habit or principle of being independent and self-reliant versus collectivism, which is the practice or principle of giving a group priority over each individual in it. I'm curious for you, especially being, you know, Asian American, how, how do you see that manifest for you, if at all? Yeah. So it's so interesting because while I think people, including myself, might identify me as what they call a third culture kid, the idea being that there's a group of people who have been raised in a culture that is not the same culture as their parents. And so that could literally be like you're displaced from your homelands, you were an international boarding school person, you could be a military brat. But the idea being that because of that, you have this dual consciousness because the probably the values that my parents had at home are different from the values that I got outside the home. So because of that, it's interesting because I definitely got that sense growing up from my parents, totally understanding that one, like Eastern civilization continues to evolve. So their definition of collectivism, their relationship to individualism is evolving. And my parents have a specific subjective flavor of that and it's being passed down to me. But one of the things that I really noticed was Oftentimes people think of those two things as in conflict with each other. And that is not necessarily true, right? It's like, I think one thing that we can bust is the idea that it's an either or. That if something is benefiting the group, that means there might be an implicit negative impact on the individual. And if there's something that is benefiting the individual, that it must automatically mean that something is being lost from the group. It is possible, right? Especially as coaches that a lot of times, you know, we're in this profession because we want to be of service. So we're only successful when we are being of maximum service and supporting our clients to the best of our ability. So actually our values are aligned both as an individual and also as an industry, as a collective. And I just give that to like one way to disrupt the idea that what we're talking about is oppositional. And I think that's part of like one of the big things we're going to dismantle in this conversation. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that moves towards like, how do we actually both reconcile, you know, contributing to our own goals while also contributing to the group collective goals. And um, I think it's important to probably get specific about like what group collective goals look like. Individual ones, I think we're all pretty familiar with. Like, you know, I want to make more money. I want to be happier. I want to have more freedom in my work. All of these kind of things are very individualistic goals. Whereas I would think of things like, you know, uh, protecting the environment. That's not something that a single human can do. It's essentially a worldwide thing to do or like, reducing carbon emissions. That's not, you can reduce your carbon emissions to zero, but if no one's doing anything about it other than you, it's, it's really not going to, you know, move things in a particular direction. Other examples are like, you know, welfare states, like what do we want to do to provide for people who don't have an income or don't have health care? That's something that's sort of like a collectivist ideal. But I think there's also some intangible things there too, like, you know, 
culture is itself sort of a collection of individual thoughts. Um, that's sort of how I tend to think of culture. It's like the thoughts combined in a particular context, but like culture itself is not a thing that you can like look at and touch. It's just something abstract that we treat as real. But changing culture is often something that we wanna do. Like for a lot of us, I think nowadays, making sure that there's acceptance for the complete range of sexualities is something that we've really had as values. And that's not something that's necessarily just about the like legal rights of people who belong to alternative sexualities. It's also, you know, changing how we think about these people and how they fit in to society. Yeah. So what I love about what you're saying is we're you're talking about the interplay between the individual and the collective, um, especially because we are currently living in a democracy. And as an example of this, you will often hear as an English major that English is a democratic language, right? English evolves because of the way that people use it. So for instance, is it like the Merriam dictionary that does that like announces what words they're going to include? Oh yeah. The new words that, that get included each year, which is always brilliant and often amusing. <laughs> yeah. And so that is very populist, right? Miriam is like the last final say of a word getting institutionalized. However, it comes from individuals making a word go viral, right? That has it be included in the dictionary. So just to like allow it to be possible, right? For the individual to have an impact on the collective and then the collective to be in a feedback loop with the individual. Yeah, I think the way it happens, of course, it's like a chicken and the egg problem. Like how is the collective influenced by all of our individual beliefs and thoughts, but then also how does the collective influence our individual beliefs and thoughts? It's, it's definitely a feedback cycle rather than one directional. So it is interesting to think how it updates because of course, now that these words are included in the dictionary, those are now accepted words, which will then you know potentially affect how we use them in different ways which is just fascinating to think about. Yeah. And it's just so interesting because you're like, oh, it's possible that urban dictionary or like slang dictionaries or TikTok or whatever is having a greater influence on the evolution of language than, you know, something like a corporate publisher. That being said, what you said about the environment, right, as an issue, it reminds me of The Good Place. Have you seen The Good Place? Oh, it's such a good show. Yes. And I not only have seen it, I think it's like one of the best shows to come out of the golden age of television. Okay. Amazing. So spoiler alerts, right? In the good place universe, we discover that everybody basically has a number that they die with, which is a signifier of whether they should go to heaven or hell. And unfortunately, the way the game is set up for the 21st century, because individuals are not aware of the collective impact of their actions, it's impossible for them to go to heaven because they think they might be doing a good deed by buying flowers, for instance, for their friend. But they didn't know that the flowers came from a third world country who has very unethical gardening practices and that the paper that it was wrapped in, like, you know, is not biodegradable and blah, blah, blah. And so even good deeds in the afterlife will be punished, right? 
I think the like economic term, and maybe it's not economic, but I think the economic term is an externality. If anyone wants to get hoity-toity about it, <laughs> like it's essentially that all of the things that you do have unintended consequences. Oh yeah, I think it's from economics because it's a way of like measuring that. So like when you do a particular thing, what are the economic downstream effects? And oftentimes like the environment is an externality that we don't usually consider. <laughs> So it's not just your individual choice that has an effect. It's also all of the things that created that decision in the first place and the downstream effects of it, which is really complex calculus that none of us can do. Like, even if you want to, we don't even have the like systems in place to measure that kind of shit right now. Like, even if you want to buy flowers that are like ethically positive, and of course I'm using bunny quotes, even though people can't see, like, if we don't have the information to make that decision most of the time. So, you know, you explaining that is just making me think is the way that we experience and sell and like have bought into the belief of individualism really a capitalist idea because in the world of capitalism and externalities, right? Any of the benefits I get from making like good investments, economic investments, I get to keep right? And then any unintended consequences are externalities that we are just going to push onto the collective. Yes. Oh, I think that is true. That's so good and slightly disturbing. Well, especially because as it turns out, I know from, from some of the research, the externalities are almost always paid more heavily by people who have less money. Interesting. Or impoverished or often black, brown, et cetera, as well. I, I don't have this example off the top of my head, but there's some sort of chemical plant, I believe in the San Francisco Bay area where the wind, it blows and essentially they let it blow onto the, you know, less uppity um, communities, but because the, you know, well-to-do communities advocated for not having the chemical plant blow on them, they aren't allowed to, but Unfortunately, it still blows onto the people in the like less economically advantaged neighborhood, which is awful. Yeah. And again, like that is such a great example of where individual responsibility ended, right? It ended with not my yard <laughs> as opposed to like not my country, not my county, not my planet, you know? Yeah. Let's bring this back to sort of like hundred percent responsibility for your thoughts and feelings then because that is the underlying assumption of a lot of the coaching I think certainly you and I are involved with so if we're responsible for our results maybe one of the things to think about is how are we responsible for our results for ourselves but maybe the results of our actions on others and I know that's one of the things that thinking this way often encourages you to not do, but do we need to start adding sort of our effects on others, essentially, and it's not effects on others' thoughts or feelings, it's effects on other circumstances. Do we need to add that to, to our models? Is that something that's missing right now? Are we considering that even? Yeah. So I love this question because it reminds me of the intent versus impact. Yeah. Right. So that is something that we're talking about as it relates to like white supremacy, for instance, or like LGBTQIA plus conversations, because somebody may be, hey, that wasn't my intention, 
i.e. that wasn't my thought, right? So I'm blameless because my thought was not there. However, the impact of that thought is no different than if it were your thought, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like if you don't know that you are buying your flowers from a really bad environmental polluter, it doesn't mean the environment isn't polluted just because you aren't thinking about it or it's not your intention to buy from, you know, someone who like uses a bunch of pesticides. Yeah. So this reminds me, are you familiar with the not so recent Rachel Hollis scandal? Yes, at least a little bit. I didn't like dig into it just because I was like, oh, a white lady did a stupid thing on the internet. You know, it's a day. <laughs> okay. So I will be honest in that my knowledge of Rachel Hollis is pretty limited. So I just was observing the impact of what she did. But I think this is a very great case study for what we're talking about. Just to recap for people who don't know what happened, she posted one video. And I think alluded to the fact that she had house help and somebody said that she was unrelatable because she shared that she had house help and she clapped back at the woman who critiqued her for having house help. So she just doubled down on being unrelatable and the feedback basically that she got was she's coming across as very privileged. She's coming across as very racist She's coming across as tone deaf to her audience because she is implying a lot of things about other people as she's implying things that make herself look good. She implied like she works hard, which like implied that other people weren't working hard, you know, including like for maybe her house help. Right. 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 Yeah. The particularly problematic part. Yeah. Yeah. And she was drawing a lot of parallels between her journey and a lot of other people who were like civil rights leaders, you know? So there was a, a big backlash from that. And so I'm not bringing this up to really unpack that. I really kind of want to unpack the aftermath, right? All of these posts have been taken down, but there was an apology where basically she's like, that wasn't my intent, right? And didn't really own the impact. And then like her or her team like deleted comments, right? And, or did some stuff. And then again, no responsibility. She was like, my team did that. I didn't know my team was doing that. So like, don't blame me. And again, it was like, she was not practicing hundred percent responsibility. It, you know, she was blaming her team. She wasn't showing up as like CEO, you know? And it's kind of like, I think there was that incongruency. My hunch is she doesn't think of herself. I mean, per her own TikTok about it, she doesn't think of herself as like privileged, right? She thinks she's really earned this, like all of these things, like her intent and her identity were incongruent with how people were receiving her. And like over here, it's like, it's true that you were not responsible for people's thoughts about you. I mean, I do think that, and then this is maybe something I'm workshopping, but I do think that that is a super supportive tenant in coaching. However, you know, I would get curious, right? It's like, how in alignment are you? Cause if like, it's like if who you want to identify as 
isn't in alignment with what you say and isn't in alignment with what you do as it's being reflected by other people, like what's going on? And I think that's where the, I think that's where like the 100 responsibility, I'm like, I wonder what difference it would make when people kind of expand their idea. Like if she in that moment expanded her idea of responsibility to include her team or be responsible for like not managing her team well, right? Responsible for the container of her community, right? Because the people who were talking to her predominantly in the beginning and who knows what happened when it went viral was her own community, what difference would it make if she was responsible for her community, you know? Yeah. And making it be a space that reflects her values. Because if it doesn't feel like a space that reflects her values, what, I mean, that seems like something that she ideally would have responsibility for. Maybe that's something to at least consider if a community that you're putting together doesn't reflect the things that you seem to espouse and not necessarily coming from a judgy place, but like, like we're supposed to do with our own thoughts, looking at it with curiosity of like, oh, why did this turn into a thing that felt really, you know, alienating for my community? Why did this happen? And what part did I play in that? And maybe that's where the responsibility comes from. Yeah. So those are like things I think about. So there is a book I read called Upstream. And it is like basically a merging of these two concepts, right? Because it asks the question, because a lot of times in 100% responsibility, individual coaching, it's like the buck stops with me, right? All the circumstances of the world happen and then the buck stops with me. And then who do I want to be about it? And I think about this a lot because, you know, I also work in TV and film, right? And so I could have a lot of thoughts about the industry, right? As an American female, like bisexual actress. And like the statistics just show, like the facts just show that somebody with my demographic characteristics is statistically less likely to get hired than if I was like a white, able-bodied, heteronormative man, probably in a specific age group, right? And so for me, I could, you know, just be at the impact of that and not be responsible for it. However, like if I'm going to be more expansive, I have to remind myself, like I fucking chose to be an actor anyway. And now that I know these facts, like, what do I want to do about it? Not only for me, but for people beyond me, which is part of the reason why I'm a coach, right? How can we have collectivism and individualism be both and, and have it challenge us to be even more upstream in our thinking so that this way, like we're not going to be in reactive conversations about what we can be responsible for. We can have like way bigger conversations that might even prevent that reactionary thing from happening. Oh, that's so good. Especially, I love the idea of the upstream, especially because I mean, all of us are probably going to recognize that we can't individually change an entire culture, like save the planet. Like that's just not true. We know this. I would call that even a circumstance, but we can contribute to the change because if everyone made the decision to like, you know, see the circumstances and be like, eh, we can't do anything about it. My little personhood is not going to make any difference here. Then nothing would ever change. So 
even if you don't have 100% control of the collective result, that doesn't mean you can't contribute to it. It doesn't mean that you can't create a result that long-term shifts things. So maybe this is also like a really having a long-term view of how your decisions are going to affect the world. Maybe that's part of it as well. Yeah. I want to use it as an example. I think there's like a week or a month where you know, we announced that we want to close like the gender wealth gap. I think it's around International Women's Day. And like a lot of pushback happens because there are a lot of companies whose consumers are women that will try to like get you to buy more things, you know, by <laughs> by being like, will you help us in the fight against like gender wage inequality? And it was pointed out to me And it's like, hey, actually, what is more supportive than just having your consumerist self be activated is for the brands that you do buy, be like, hey, how is the gender wage equity in your company, right? And that is also being responsible as a consumer. This might also be true for like environmental stuff, like, hey, corporation, I am a consumer of yours. I'm a part of your community and your container. Um, And this is something that's important to me. And this is what I think is great about social media platforms, because one person's voice has the ability to go viral and create social issues that maybe corporations personally wouldn't like to amplify. But that's one way I see it. Yeah. And there's some really good examples of that. Actually, of course, I spent most of my career in the tech industry, which has gotten into a lot of hot water for being not particularly gender diverse. But I think probably like five to 10 years ago, some companies started releasing yearly statistics on sort of gender diversity in certain roles. And the reality is in the tech industry, certain roles tend to be more highly paid than others. And they often correlate to gender as well. So It's often, you know, salary in sort of technical roles. Some companies are not willing to do that. Like Google, I believe, has actually gotten in some hot water around their gender pay equity. And I think there's a Supreme Court case. Could be wrong. It might just be like a federal court case. But actually, an example of a company doing at least something is when I was at Salesforce, They actually did what they called an equity audit, where over certain dimensions, including gender, but also including race, nationality, all these kind of things, they looked at pay and automatically gave you a pay bump if they found that you were underpaid for your position, which was pretty awesome. I won't lie. I ended up getting a pay bump. And I say this because... I want to like use this as an example. I am a really good negotiator. Like I always asked for a lot of things and a lot of extra money. And I was like, I remember in that job, I was like, yeah, I got a lot of extra. I must be like at least as highly paid as my colleagues. Nope. (laughs) Even when you advocate for yourself, it doesn't necessarily lead to getting to like a place of equity. So this is why the collective action also is important. Like sometimes even if you do the individual stuff, it doesn't get you there. Yeah. Yeah, You're also like pointing to something that I do like about the way 100% responsibility has been working because we do really think about the individual to collective impact, right? Because I have so many friends who are coaches who talk about closing the gender wealth gap, right? And how they do it is by supporting women with their salary negotiations, with their career transitions, with building their businesses. 
as like an individual contribution to that game. And so part of it is like what we're doing is we're being like, great. And not only when it immediately benefits us, right? Do I play for the collective? But how can I play for the collective winning as a win for me too, without me getting an immediate like dopamine hit from like some hedonic gift that I get, you know? Right. Yeah. Especially when you realize that rising tides rise all boats kind of thing. Yeah. We all benefit from having a society that values all of our well-being and all of our health and all of our pay equity and everything, even if you are not one of the people who currently need to have your boat risen as much. Wow, I'm really stretching the limits of this metaphor. But like, this is why I think allyship is so important. Maybe part of the thing about being an ally is like really thinking about the collective and contributing to that thought. Yeah. And also like uh, just for like a pin in that ally conversation, right? In allyship, you often hear the phrase like you don't determine if you're an ally, right? The person you're being an ally to determines whether or not you're an ally, which is very, very much in parallel to what we were talking about intent versus impact, you know? So that's like going to be an interesting thing to to like noodle on for a future episode. Is there anywhere else you want to go in this conversation? Well, one, I think we should really maybe get specific on like what we can do as coaches to to really contribute to this practically. But one thing we haven't discussed, we've really been like, you know, questioning individualism, but is there anything about the collective that might be, you know, mindful to keep apprised of? Because both of these perspectives have their pros and cons and like can work together. But sometimes I think the collective doesn't always, always benefit us. So when does it make sense to resist it or question it or things along those lines? Yeah, that is a great question. One is, I guess I just assumed because we grew up like in a culture that is steeped more individualism that we already know what the minuses of collectivism is, right? Which may like not be apparent to some people. So I would say like, there are going to be instances where like the collective may be incongruent with what the individual wants. And so my solution to that would be like, what is the collective you identify with? Right? Because like, for instance, like I'm a U.S. citizen, right? So a collective that I identify with is the United States of America. And what is my definition of the United States of America? Because there are certain elements of it that I don't identify with. And if I chose to identify with it, it would be very incongruent with my individual beliefs. I would be at the impact of it. Like I could feel victimized by it. I don't agree with it. And I wouldn't wanna do anything for them wholesale, right? And it's just like, okay, well, how can I shift this lens? Like one is like humans, right? Planet, it's like, what collective does it serve you to identify being a part of? What collective can you play for a win on an individual level and a win on the group level? Like for instance, like Google versus Salesforce, right? And it's like, okay, how do I wanna identify with this collective idea of an employer, right? 
Also, the employer is asking like, who do I want to be in this particular case? Yeah, right. And then your general organization, especially big companies, it's like, you know, the big organization you're under, then like a mini organization, then like a team, then like, you know, you and your boss. So in some ways, it sounds like we get to have individual responsibility for which collective we identify with at any particular moment. And maybe one of the things to think about to get even to the practical coaching stuff is like, what collective that I'm a part of and want to be a part of benefits me in this particular circumstance? What? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super fun. Okay. We can like add an additional line or something or have it be parallel. We often are in a sphere that uses a particular model. So for those of you who might not know it, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. But essentially, essentially, it involves modeling things out with different lines. So that's what I'm referring to when I'm saying like add a line to it. Yeah. And for any coaches that are listening, um, my clients know that a, a very common question that I ask is I always ask, like, how does this benefit them? How does this benefit you? Um, like my clients are creatives. Like how does this benefit you, your art, other people and the world, right? So how does you getting you what, getting what you want, like the beginning of a butterfly or ripple effect for everyone. Again, for the kind reminder that we are ultimately all on the same team. Ah, that's such a good thought to adopt too. Like we're all on the same team. So maybe that's, that's like one of the things that we build in to all of these is like that thought of we're all on the same team and we all want good things for humans. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. And maybe, maybe then we trust that the results, if we are on the same team are going to be the ones we want. But you have to think of yourself on a team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what difference would it make, right? For individuals who feel like they're shouting into the void on some of these like collectivist issues, if they believed that, you know, they may be one person, but they represent a greater whole. Like I would say that there was definitely a sense of belonging and team and collective I remember feeling a part of, for instance, last year around like all the Black Lives Matter stuff, you know, a lot of people probably individually felt the impact to varying degrees. However, we trusted and organized ourselves, right? Or participated in what other people organized to benefit everyone. And I think a lot of us in in things that particularly are like big social systemic challenges, do feel alone sometimes. Like we feel like we're the only ones actually, you know, who give a shit about this. I certainly am the person who like scrolls through my Facebook feed and is like, why does no one care about the environment? Which is not true. Yeah. And and again, this just reminds me of like capitalism wants things to be individualistic, right? Because it only benefits like the capitalist, the late stage capitalist economy to believe that all of these externalities only Meg cares about, right? And then the system doesn't have to change. So it's like the system already believes in the benefit of in like systemic structures, collectivism, whatever, right? 
And so like, what difference would it make if we started operating on that like systemic level, just like they are right. So, yeah, but with a completely different set of thoughts. Exactly. I feel like, I feel like I'm starting to visualize the system now as like a little stick figure person. I might have to illustrate it at some point. Like what does the current system look like? Cool. It's going to be really, really not at all attractive or good, but that's all right. We use illustrations for, for understanding rather than art purposes in my house. All right. Is there anything else we want to cover? I think we not only covered a lot, but this got like just some big stuff. Now for today's palette cleanser. So something that I'm dating, I'm not sure if I love, is I got lash extensions. I don't know if you can see them for the first time. They're very subtle. I did notice you looking extra fabulous. I won't lie. (laughs) Yeah, I will say that I've been getting more attention going out, I guess, maybe because it's like, in some cases, the only part of me that you can see. I didn't think it would make such a difference. But on my one trip out of the house today, people noticed it. And so it is an investment or an expense, depending on your opinion (laughs) of the lash extensions but I'm just like dating them right now and I'm having fun and I'm a little bit impressed because they seem pretty durable. So I will keep you posted on my long-term thoughts, but basically I'm in a long-term relationship with my lash extensions for sure. What? You have lash extensions? They look so natural and, but they are my secret to like waking up looking like this as it were. See, I didn't know. I didn't know. I know. They just make, it's like a little something extra. And I notice when I'm not wearing them. So. Okay. Because I used to just assumed either people had really great lashes naturally or had really good like mascara systems or whatever. I only recently dawned on me that more people get lash extensions than I know about. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I hadn't gotten them until like a year or two ago. And then I'm like, I'm never not doing this. During the pandemic, of course, I couldn't get them. And it caused some serious feels because I would look at myself and be like, why are my eyes not gorgeous when I wake up in the morning? Which is a thing. Yeah. My person came to my apartment. Ooh. That's like a, a thing now, maybe. I think in LA, it is a thing because I think I've heard other podcasts where they talk about it, but I was like, oh my gosh, someone just comes to me, makes me look good. And then I don't have to think about it for at least three weeks, right? Magic. It's sorcery. Yeah. All right. So what am I in love with other than my lash extensions? Because as it turns out, I've been in a long-term relationship with them for a while. I really love my Nintendo Switch. It was my gift to myself when I got COVID. I knew I was not going to be able to leave the house. I knew I was going to be miserable. And even if it had just been for that, it would have been worth the investment, but it's like the best thing ever. And I'm the person who plays Pokemon and Animal Crossing and essentially generally cute games. So it's not like you have to be a serious gamer. And the cool thing is it like can come with you. So it's like a portable gaming thing, but also it has this little mount so you can like play games with people on the TV and stuff. So cool. 
And as someone who grew up, you know, gaming old school style, all of this like ongoing gaming and fancy shit and like buying games and downloading them is just still very novel to me. I was the person who like had to switch CDs in the PlayStation to play like this four of Final Fantasy VIII. That one I think had 40. So I love my Switch and it's often what I do to occupy myself between client calls because it like is completely mundane and allows me to like turn off my brain. So highly recommend it for anyone and everyone who likes cute things and gaming and turning off your brain. Yay, sounds perfect. Thanks for joining us with Clarity Call. Wanna take this conversation about coaching online? We'd really love to hear from you. So you should reach out to us on social media. You can reach out to me, Nancy. I am a coach for creatives. I help you create the art, money, and impact you want. You can find me on Instagram at the Nancy Sun. And if you want to connect with me, Meg Kirstead, um, you can also find me on Instagram at Meg Kirstead, and that's spelled K-I-E-R-S-T-E-A-D. I help ADHDers and other neurodivergent badasses redesign their work and lives to fit with their unique brains. And I also have an incredible community called the Black Sheep Playground, which is the best place in the entire world for you to come and play if you have ADHD. Great. You can find our Instagram handles in the show notes. So feel free to give us a follow. Until next time.